This is a special edition of Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. My name's David Runciman and we are sitting in my office in Cambridge in the politics department. It's just gone 11 o'clock. Uh, we're just going <laughs> to... I did do a list. Uh, I'm joined by our regular panel, Helen Thompson, Finbar Libsey, Chris Brook. I was going to do Something sort of... How was it for you to get it going? <laughs> I slept for an hour with very disturbed dreams. I think I probably fell asleep about half past midnight. I'm as sleep deprived as I've been for the past three years. And then I woke up at four. To, so an, take... to another world. <laughs> okay, so we'll start then. Okay. Uh... Not a lot has happened in the last 12 hours, so we're going to see if we can find some things to talk about. The Prime Minister resigned a couple of hours ago. A couple of hours before that, the United Kingdom decided that it wished to leave the European Union. The stock markets, if I look at my computer, I think we're down about 5% in the UK, but we're down a lot further in other places in Spain, in France, in Germany. The pound is gyrating. I'm looking at Helen at this point. It's up and down. If any of the other party leaders resign while we're doing this podcast, and fingers crossed about that one, we will try and update you. But you won't be hearing this, we think, until tomorrow, because it takes a little time to edit and upload. Given what's happened in the last 12 hours, it's possible that other things will happen in the next 12, 24 hours that we don't know anything about. So you'll have to bear with us. We're all a little sleep deprived, um, and we're all a little uh, taken aback, or maybe we're not. I'm certainly taken aback. I didn't see it coming. I think this is the third very surprising event that's happened in the last 12 months. The election of Jeremy Corbyn was the first. The election of Donald Trump or the selection of Donald Trump hasn't happened yet as the Republican nominee was the second. And this was the third. The difference between this one and the other two is they played out over months and you had time to adjust. This one, there was about 20 minutes in the middle of the night when it was clear that it had gone from being an open question to leave was definitely going to win and I found that quite intense. Chris, did you find it intense? Well, like you, I expected Remain to win, but I don't think we can take this as such a surprise. Any number of opinion polls that were taken during the campaign showed that leave was in the lead. It's very clear from the way the campaign has been conducted that there's been a sense that it's been on a knife edge. I think a lot of people were complacent about a Remain victory when they saw the last-minute polls and they saw what was happening with the betting odds on the day of the referendum. But we've actually had a long time to get used to the idea that the referendum might be carried and the United Kingdom might be out of the European Union. Uh, so it's not a shock in that sense of something coming completely out of the blue. It's a political miscalculation that the Prime Minister made when he called the referendum. He staked his career on it, and he's lost. Yeah, and absolutely. About a week ago, it didn't seem like a shock at all. And that's one of the really odd things about the last 24 hours. And I think a lot of people have learned and then learnt not to do it next time, that the betting markets are meant to be a very good guide. And certainly last night, I told my children to look at the Ladbrokes website. And I said, when it says 1 to 12, that means serious people are betting serious money on this, and they're not throwing it away. Yes, they were throwing it away. And even through the night, as you track the results, and it seemed clear that Leave was winning, Remain was still the favourite. I mean, that to me is almost the most baffling thing of all. Tens of millions of pounds were being lost by people who are meant to actually really care about this because they've got real money at stake. 
Do you, do you understand it, Helen? What was going on last night? Obviously, something incredibly strange was going on because it wasn't just the betting markets. It was the financial markets that were speculating on what the betting markets were telling them. And they were with a great deal of money at stake, probably more than in the betting markets, getting it hopelessly wrong um, too. And so there's a kind of strange atmosphere in this sense in that we have pollsters, not all of them, but certainly the polls that came out in the last 24 hours getting it horribly wrong in some instances one of the polls at least one of the polls showing a 10 point lead for remain we've got financial markets that are paying for their own private polling so that they can speculate through the night and then also getting it horribly wrong and that's um a conjunction of economics and politics that i think is we've not really seen before Fimba, did you did you have a moment in the night when you thought this is actually going to happen. Because some people claim that they saw it when they saw the Sunderland result. But when you saw the Sunderland result and you did what I did, like the people that Helen was just describing, not knowing what they were doing and looked at the backing markets, you thought, oh, well, these people obviously know something I don't. Because, And then actually for me, it was when Vince Cable said, this is done. I thought, wow, it's done. Um, I have to admit that I didn't see it coming, but I just felt uneasy throughout the whole of the campaign. And about two weeks ago, I think it really started to hit home, not because I had any foresight, but because I actually just felt uncomfortable being in the country and not being British. And the combination of those personal moments along with the analytical moments were a very strange mix coming up to the vote. Once some of the early results had come in, I actually went and hid under my duvet because I didn't want to see the destruction happening in real time. I got back up again four or five o'clock and then was looking at it as everybody else was looking at it, going, I can't believe that that has just happened. I think some of the answers about what was happening in terms of the markets probably go to the, forgive me, the class divide in Britain and who was making those bets. You know, the polling was wrong, but the polling was indicating A, B, C, 1s were all for remain, C, 2, D, E's were all for leave. And if you suggest that those professional classes are the people who are then making some of those decisions, they're telling themselves a story which they want to have come true. And so I think there's some reinforcement going on as well. One explanation I've seen floated, and I don't know whether it's true, and I don't know whether we'll get the information to be able to tell whether it might be true, is that the referendum ended up being won on the postal votes that were cast earlier. And if you think about it, that helps to make sense of the mood yesterday, because if public opinion really was shifting back towards Remain in the last few days, perhaps even in the days following the murder of the Labour MP Joe Cox, then that would make sense about why people took the signs of high turnout and the last-minute opinion polls as a reliable guide to what was actually going to happen, if, in fact, millions of postal votes had already been cast, had already been posted, and were waiting to be counted. They belong to an earlier moment in public opinion. So it's entirely possible that there isn't, in fact, a majority in the country today for British withdrawal from the European Union. It's a funny artefact of the way the election, the way the referendum was carried out, over the last few weeks. Democracy. <laughs> uh, even that, though, is kind of baffling because there was a lot of discussion about the postal votes just before the murder of Joe Cox, when the polls were showing this very strong leave lead. And people who got sight of the postal votes were saying, this looks very, very bad. And then the people who are meant to be serious about this, the money men, and I think they're almost all men, what they forgot about that? I mean, that's what's so extraordinary. It's very, what you say is really interesting. I'm sure you're right that there are a whole series of moods, but it's so baffling that the biggest bubble of all seemed to be among the people who actually had real money at stake. 
I, I think that's absolutely right, and you get a sense that um, everyone, you know, like sometimes happens in irrational markets, that people notice what other people are doing and follow their lead, and that then helps the self-reinforcing dynamic into motion, and, and so it goes on. So we'll come on in a second to Cameron, Corbyn, what might happen. But just to go back over the campaign again, and it's so raw still, it's so early after the result, and these things will no doubt be studied for years and years. People like us will be expected to teach these things. Who knows what impact the campaign had? When I saw the result last night, I thought back to a conversation that we had on this podcast with Jeremy Cliff, the um, economist correspondent who writes the budget column. And when I was discussing referendums with him, I said, which turned out to be wrong, that political science conventionally thinks that campaigns don't matter. And then after that conversation with him, I checked. And that's true except for referendums, where political science says the campaigns do matter. The other conventional wisdom is there's a reversion to the status quo. Now, there clearly wasn't a reversion to the status quo. But I'm assuming, Helen, in this case, the campaign did matter. I think that in some sense that it did. But I, I think that if we go back to 2013 and the time when Cameron decided that he wanted to hold this referendum to deal with the, the problems that he had, I think he had a reasonably astute understanding of what the political problem was, at least in terms of actually winning the referendum. You can come back to the question about its relationship to whether the Conservatives had a parliamentary majority or not. And that was, and you know when he's serious, when he, sends, when he sent, I should use a past tense about him now, John Major out onto the airwaves. John Major went on the Today programme, I remember, and said that uh, unless it was possible to find a break on free movement of Labour into Britain, then Britain's membership of the EU was unsustainable and that it was simply a message to Angela Merkel, to, I think, to try to understand that. A few weeks later, it became clear that Merkel had told Cameron that there was going to be no compromise on that issue. And I think in many ways, the astonishing thing is, is that having understood that reasonably clearly, he then, he being Cameron, went, then went and pursued a parliamentary majority for the Conservative Party by trying to decapitate the Liberal Democrats in the Southwest. Those two things just don't go together. And I think, so in that sense, I don't think that the campaign did matter. At the same time, I think that from the point of view of the Conservative Party and the point of view of trying to get basically Eurosceptic Conservative voters to vote for Remain, I think that the campaign was pretty spectacularly unsuccessful. And I think that particularly I would point to him calling the, his own voters Little Englanders as a way of trying to persuade them. I think that was a pretty idiotic thing to do. Just to go back to that earlier point, just just explain a little bit more. Why was the strategy to decapitate Liberal Democrats in the South West so disastrous for what's happened to him in the last 24 hours? Because he has to, at that point, once he won a parliamentary majority, he actually had to hold this referendum. If he had a coalition, carried on with the coalition, he could have negotiated that away as one of the first things that he conceded to the Liberal Democrats about carrying on with a, a new um, coalition. And I think that the, the judgment behind that does, I'm afraid, go to some of the weaknesses in Cameron's political judgment about how short term it is. He doesn't. He did understand certain things very well, and is a very competent politician in many ways. But joining up the different bits of his judgment seems something that he, in the end, here wasn't able to do, and he's paid a you know a horrible price for it in terms of his own life. And in that respect, he's a bit like the betting markets and the financial markets. He forgot the things that he knew. Yeah. I thought when I thought that this was going to be a conversation about the success of Remain, that we would be discussing, as we've discussed before in this podcast, George Osborne's brilliance as a politician and the ways in which he managed different bits of this campaign, because I thought, when I believed the polls, that Osborne's interventions tended to be the decisive ones. 
Now I think that if there's one person who's going to claim credit for this, it's someone that's not discussed much, but is probably a very significant figure, it's going to be a very significant figure in British politics, which is Dominic Cummings. Gove's right-hand man, by all accounts, a difficult person, but also a very, very strategic person, who, among other things, came up with the slogan, which was, take control. Not that you'll get change, but that you will take control. That does seem to have made a big difference. Do we think that the, the, the Leave campaign was being managed by someone who really understood messaging in a way that the Remain campaign wasn't? At almost every point, the slogans, the sound bites, the statements were crisper from the Leave campaign. I tried not to watch the great debate on BBC because I knew that I'd break my television, but I forced myself to do it. And in almost every regard, when you're looking at it, you can see the message discipline that was coming from the Vote Leave side that wasn't apparent in the Remain side. There's a, a very interesting uh, Oliver Sacks article on how our brains process rational speech and uh, emotional speech. And the reputed uh, story that he tells is going to watch election coverage of the American election when Reagan was standing in America. And he went to a care home where there were patients who had conditions which didn't allow them to understand emotional speech and different patients who had conditions which didn't allow them to understand rational speech. And he said it was fascinating watching the temporal response they had to the speeches and how they felt at that time because the people who had emotional speech interpretation all went for Reagan and the people who had no emotional speech regulation couldn't understand why anybody would vote for him in the slightest. And I feel that way slightly about what was happening in the messaging. It was all based on emotion and emotion won in the campaign. Chris, Dominic Cummings, do you think he's the, the new Svengali in British politics? I think, I mean, it's good that we're talking about him. He's an extraordinary man. He worked as one of Mr. Gove's advisors for a while. And I think it was after he held that post, he uploaded onto the the internet this extraordinary document, this crazy manifesto for how he thought education should be reorganised in this country, and he called it the Odyssean Project. And it's this mad combination of imagining that British education can be transformed and people can study huge amounts of science when they're young, and it's a really eccentric document. And we associate people who self-publish documents on the web as being slightly uh, eccentric, slightly unhinged. And his Odyssean manifesto has all the signs of that. So it looks to me that on the one hand, he's somebody with no self-awareness. He has no sense that if you publish a long document like that, people who read it will find you ridiculous. He has no self-awareness at all. But nevertheless, he does seem to have had a very good sense of the political psychology of the United Kingdom right now. And he is going to get a lot of the credit for what's happening. And I suspect that he deserves it. And as far as one can tell, his political rationale when he was working with Gove in the education department was a loathing of civil servants, a sort of loathing of what he saw as conventional careerist civil servants, which he seems to have just translated onto this larger body of civil servants, the European bureaucracy. But he's found a way to take that slightly eccentric view of the world and make it resonate. It is extraordinary. I think that's right. And I think we, in Dominic Cummings, we're seeing the emergence of a certain type of right-wing political actor. I think Douglas Carswell, the UKIP Member of Parliament is another example. These rather imaginative right-wing politicians who are paying a lot of attention to what's happening on the internet or what's happening in new techniques for mobilising 
citizens, new techniques for opinion formation. I think we're going to see a lot more of this kind of thing in the future, and that it's well worth paying attention to Carswell and Cummings as um, harbingers of what may be to come. Okay, so that's a good point to pivot to the question of what's coming next. So I want to introduce another name into this, who I'm sure will get some discussion in the next few days, but I haven't seen him talked about much. So I, unlike some of you, I did stick it out all through the night, and I tried to sort of keep my mind open um, and listen to what people were saying and not turn the sound off and react. Um, and the person that I liked listening to most was David Davis, in that I found him reassuring. Um, I found him sensible. I thought emotionally there was nothing triumphalist about him. And David Davis, for people who don't know, he was very much on the leave side. But he's also, of course, the person who could have been, should have been, would have been the Tory leader if he hadn't made a duff speech at the conference uh, in 2005, am I right? Allowing Cameron to do his old Etonian act and speak without notes for 20 minutes and waltz away with the prize. And I found myself thinking it would be a nice turn of fate if our next Prime Minister was David Davis. Helen? I agree. I thought he was the most impressive person that I listened to all night as well, in the sense that, as you say, that he was calm and measured and he didn't engage in any gloating. And I think that if you look at what's happened to the Conservative Party in the shires, that it's been a you know catastrophic failure for them. In that sense, it's been as much of a failure for them in part of their heartland as it's been for Labour in its old industrial heartland. And David Davis was somebody who could have spoken to that Tory England, and the Conservatives chose somebody who, who was very different than that. And I think one of the things that's forgotten in the way in which um, Cameron's modernisation project was seen or has been seen is, is that in lots of ways the detoxification of the Conservative Party, as he wanted to call it then, was about shredding both working class conservatism and shire conservatism out of the Conservative Party. And that has come back and haunted David Cameron big time because that is not the Conservative Party that he was trying to lead. It's too small a coalition and uh, he, he's paid the price for that now. And if I was Labour, David Davis would be the person I would be frightened of if there was going to be an election in the next year or so. He's often compared to Alan Johnson, the two senior politicians who kind of come across as real people. I mean, it's, it's all relative. But Johnson did not have a good campaign, and obviously he was on the losing side. But Davis did. And he does seem to speak to those parts of the country that the entire political establishment has been struggling to reach. So is there, is there a way in which the Tory party, which is an election-winning machine, will come to its senses and see that Davis is a better bet than Johnson? I think I don't know a great deal about this, but from what I understand, he's not particularly popular within the parliamentary conservative But party. nor is Johnson. No. no. <laughs> if it's a popularity and contest, so it'll I be... I think that from that point of view is, is having a, a contest between men with very large egos, shall we say, is going to pose them some um, problems. But in terms of connecting to those voters who are Tory voters who have basically gone out and shafted their Prime Minister, then I think Davis would be the best person for the Conservative Party. That doesn't necessarily mean he would be the best person to lead the Conservative Party. And what about Corbyn, Finbar? Is there any possible way he can survive this? It just, just does seem like a complete fiasco. And if you do the counterfactual and assume imagine that Remain had won 52-48, which is perfectly possible. And as Chris said, say you take the postal votes out, that could have happened. Maybe that was the mood of the, the country yesterday. The Labour Party would be looking at annihilation in the North by UKIP. Um, UKIP would do to them what the SNP did to them in Scotland, 
a party with a grudge, with a lot of people who feel that they'd been robbed of something that they were entitled to. Now, the fact, we'll come on to UKIP in a second, the fact that UKIP sort of don't have a grudge now makes it difficult to know what their future is. But this was a disaster for Labour, and it is Corbyn's fault. It was a disaster for Labour, but as we spoke about in a number of other podcasts, what's the mechanism for removing him? The rules of the Labour Party don't provide an easy way now to actually take Corbyn out, unless rank and file across both the parliamentary Labour Party and the three-pound voters, there's a turn against him. And that's the question. Will the, the voters who came to him outside of the parliamentary Labour Party now decide actually, oh, that was a mistake and I have buyer's remorse and I want something different? And that's an unknowable right now because... Where do they land? How do we feel? How do we listen to their voice? We have no sense of what that's going to Chris, be. Chris, do you, do you have any sense of what the people who voted for Corbyn feel about this? I think the people who voted for Corbyn are still quite supportive of Corbyn. I think you see that when people do take surveys of party members. But I think there is a mechanism for getting rid of him, but it's one that not many people will welcome, all things considered. I don't think Corbyn enjoys being leader of the Labour Party. I don't think it's a job he ever wanted. I don't think it's a job that he's well suited to. And I think doing a job badly in such a punishing public gaze must be a very unpleasant thing to be doing. So Corbyn, I think, would like a way out. He'd like an exit strategy. The trouble is he's had his entire career uh, building up the left faction in the Labour Party, and he won't quit if there isn't an avenue for there to be a left-wing succession. So it seems to me there is a mechanism. If enough centrist members of parliament in the Labour Party can tell Corbyn that they would like a leadership competition, but they will nominate John McDonnell, then I think the way is clear for Corbyn to stand down and be replaced by another figure from the left. Whether McDonnell would be more palatable to the Parliamentary Labour Party, to the National Labour Party and to the broader electorate is very hard to gauge. But that seems to me a plausible scenario. MacDonald would like to be leader, and Corbyn, I don't think, wants to be leader anymore at all. But the bad blood in the Parliamentary Labour Party now is something, and we probably don't see much of it. I mean, the Tory party, they lay into each other in public, but actually, probably, there's less bad blood there, even now, after what's happened in the last few weeks. Just what you're hearing even this morning about Labour, it's poisonous there. And MacDonald is he's on the wrong side for far too many of them, isn't he? For them even to come up with some understanding or undertaking that manoeuvres Corbyn out and then gives them a shot at something. I just, it just seems to me to be rancorous beyond the possibility of these kinds of negotiations. It may very well be. This is the only scenario I've been able to war game in my own head about how you solve a problem like Jeremy Corbyn. <laughs> um, but the, uh, the, but the general issue, I think, is that, that if Corbyn... I mean, at any time, the Parliamentary Labour Party can challenge Corbyn for the leadership. But as things stand at the moment, any challenger will lose because Corbyn is still very popular with the grassroots who will cast the votes in a membership election. I think the problem for McDonald is, is why you could see a scenario that Chris has outlined a few weeks ago, even that last night he behaved like a man who was very much in bed with Jeremy Corbyn and the sense that he acted like he didn't particularly care about what was happening and so I think that from the point of view of those who might just have accepted the centrist in the Labour Party who might just have accepted that exchange a few weeks ago I, I think that's off the table now. Okay this seems like a good moment it's just gone half past 11 uh, 20 minutes is a long time in politics today 
Uh, has anyone quit? Uh, looking at the BBC website, no. Uh, and the markets are roughly where they were when we last looked, down 4.84%, the FTSE. Um, but yeah, I think things are going to carry on happening. Has um, Boris Johnson made a statement yet? Shame on you, Boris, crowds yell. No, someone said something to so him. So Boris has gone into hiding um, and Farage is admitting he lied. And of Fantastic. course, it is a slow news day. We must mention that Donald Trump is in the country. Trump in Scotland. Congratulating <laughs> Scotland for voting for Brexit when they didn't. It is something just scanning this page of news. Um, there isn't any other news. Glastonbury off to a muddy start. <laughs> You're listening to Election, the Cambridge Politics Podcast. So I have three more questions, uh, unless anything happens. I'm actually going to keep this open now, and I'm going to keep my eye on it. UKIP. What happens to UKIP? The, the, the moment last night where I did think I may be going to have to switch this off is when a journalist in a rather obsequious way went up to Mr. Farage and said, Mr. Farage, are you going to join the government? And Mr. Farage says, I'm going to go and party for a few days, and then I'll give you my answer, as though it was his answer to give, but he needed to get drunk first. What happens to Mr. Farage? I think that that's an incredibly difficult question to answer because it, fundamentally UKIP's purpose is, is busted now. And indeed, if you go back to Farage's statements, maybe not in that last few years, but prior to that, you know, he said that his purpose was to get Britain out of the EU and to get back into the Conservative Party. And in one sense, he's achieved those ends. But I think that in terms of probably people on his own side in the Leave campaign in the Conservative Party, he's not done anything to enamour himself to them at all. And that, from their point of view, they're best off rid of him. That would leave kind of Carswell with UKIP. But I agree with what was said earlier about him. He's a quite imaginative politician, but he's also not a very good politician politician. And it's quite difficult to see what Carswell does by itself. So while you see a scenario in which it had been 52, 48, the other way in which UKIP's purpose is very clear, and indeed you could see them you know, winning a significant amount of the vote, then it's very difficult to see what happens to them or what their purpose is now. So, Primbar, Chris, do either of you see a scenario in which the thing I outlined before does happen, in which Labour seats just fall to UKIP in the north? Or is that possibility now off the table? Well, firstly, we've got to be careful to talk about Farage as a normal politician because he isn't. This is the man who resigned as leader of UKIP and then suddenly unresigned himself. So whether or not he continues and attempts to take up a seat in some version of government, even though he's never been elected within the UK, that's a sideshow because he is just entertainment value in that sense. Carswell couldn't answer the question when asked directly what the future of UKIP is going to be. He didn't have an answer prepared. And that speaks, again, as Helen was saying, he's not a good politician politician. That's the obvious question you're going to be asked. But Chris, like you were saying, he but he has a political ideology in a way that... For, I mean, Farage does, but it's not particularly flexible. Whereas Carswell, you can imagine actually, if this is now a free and independent nation, wanting to do things with it in the way that Cummings probably also wants to do things with it. It's possible that Carswell is the politician in the House of Commons who'd be most enthusiastic about the so-called Norway option of a free market of uh, goods and services and capital and labour in the wider European economic area. That uh, what's remarkable about Carswell is that for a party that has been a one-note anti-immigration party for so long, he isn't ostentatiously hostile to migrants himself. He's an old-fashioned free market economist. But um, that party is not going to hoover up votes from Labour in the North. 
I think that's still a very much an open question. There was that by-election in Greater Manchester last year where there was quite a lot of speculation that the UKIP vote might do enormously well, that uh, Labour might only hold on to the seat uh, by a whisker. And in the end, Labour held the seat very comfortably. And what it, that suggested to me was that... Um, Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party has very little appeal in the battleground seats, in the constituencies that Labour has to win in England if it's ever to think about forming a parliamentary majority again. But it also looked as if Labour wasn't facing serious problems in its heartland. The question is the extent to which the referendum transforms that. And on the one hand, you might say that it does, that a vote like the independence referendum vote in Scotland, you know, just carries forward for the foreseeable future and ordinary politics has to organise itself around the cleavages that a vote like that lays bare. But there's another way of looking at it, which is that Europe has never been a priority for voters. When you ask voters to rank issues in order of importance, the two issues beloved of uh, ideologues of left and right, constitutional reform and Europe, often end up at the bottom of those lists. And that's partly why the Leave campaign tried to make the referendum a referendum about migration, because voters care about migration. They don't care about Europe, but they do care about migration. So I think a a lot will turn on how much this particular cleavage continues to matter over the next few months. And I have no sense of whether whether it will or not, whether the existential choice facing the Labour Party will be whether to come out as a party in favour of free trade with Europe, uh, in favour of something like membership of the European Economic Area, or not? Okay, two questions left, and we're going to broaden it. So the next one is Scotland. And we can be quick on this. Again, we just don't know. It's so early. I think we're going to come back to this. I hope we're going to have at least one more discussion around this table soon. But the thing that people feared would happen did happen. Scotland very clearly voted to stay in. And England, and to a lot of people's surprise, Wales, very clearly voted to go out. And Northern Ireland was closer than a lot of people expected. Does there have to be now a second referendum in Scotland? I think that it's a really hard question. It's even harder than the UKIP question in in some sense, or at least as difficult. Because on the one hand, nothing has actually changed from the way things were before, in the sense that the SNP still does not have answers to how it joins the EU and deals with the currency question. Indeed, its whole accession to the EU would now be have to be delayed or discussions about it until Britain's exit from the United Kingdom's exit, I should say, from the from the EU had been um, negotiated. So it uh, actually, and just to, do you think that Europe then, given the need to defend the Euro project, would make Scotland join the Euro a condition? I think it's highly likely that that would be the case. Make it a very hard vote to win. And that was a problem last time. And nothing, in that sense, nothing's changed. And actually, well, in one sense, it has because actually, well, it's got harder because of the because of the oil price. So the practical foundations of Scottish independence are weaker than they were before. But the moral foundations, exactly. But the problem is that there has been now that this consent issue. The only caveat I would put to that is is that one of the reasons why, in the end. Remain didn't win was because Scotland turned out at a lower rate than England and Wales. And actually, there was, I sat down and worked out the figures, but there wasn't a huge enthusiasm in terms of the turnout rate for Remain in Scotland. Indeed, I think in Glasgow, I think it was in the mid 50%. It must have been one of the lowest turnouts in, in the country. But in the immediate aftermath, I don't think there's going to be any doubt that there's going to be a political problem for the union. The last question Europe. That is, 
the rest of Europe. And people always used to say, well, when you say Europe, you mean Britain too, because we're part of Europe. Well, not so much anymore. Does this lead to a great unraveling? Donald Tusk said it was going to lead to the end of Western civilization. Is there some point before that, but which nonetheless looks a little bit like an unraveling of the European project? The, 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 the people who would like to see some unraveling have been very quick this morning to celebrate um, in Holland, in France, and so on. Chris, do you, I mean, do you have fears for the European project? Uh, yes. Um, I was in <laughs> Berlin a few weeks ago chatting to some archaeologists, some German archaeologists, and they were very nervous about the prospect of Brexit and worried that it would lead to the unravelling of the European Union and would lead to the return of war between European states in a way that we haven't seen in decades. And that seemed to me a little unlikely. But They're that's, making an archaeological long view. You know, we don't tend to think in this country about the European Union being a peace project. On continental Europe, they absolutely do. And there's a whole load of anxieties about uh, security that are bound up with the unravelling of the European project. It looks as if the Netherlands is the next country where public opinion may be seriously tested. And these things do take on a dynamic of their own. I was thinking about um, the wider European response just a moment ago, listening to Helen talking about Scotland, because, of course, one of the difficulties an independent Scotland will have joining the European Union is getting the consent of Spain. Spain, under no circumstances, wants a small breakaway province to join the European Union for fear of the message that will send to Catalan separatists, in particular in Barcelona. And... In an atmosphere where a major country has left the Union, uh, everyone's going to be even more nervous about the the consequences of the decisions that get made. And so, Spain has an election this weekend. So from that point of view, I rather expect the you know, Spanish obstinacy to see Scotland shut out of the Union that it has signalled it would like to be a part of. Finbar, how fearful are you? Very, um, because I think... What you're seeing is a cumulative pressure on the European project, given what happened in the financial crash, what's happened with uh, Syria and the immigration crisis. The European project needed this like a hole in the head. And so I think that there will be greater cause, as Chris was alluding to, for other countries to hold referenda. And at a point in time where we actually need to be focusing on things like recovery of economies, dealing with the continuing war in Syria and trying to search for some version of growth, we're now going to be distracted with detangling the United Kingdom from Europe, and it's going to cause an awful mess. And does anyone have any sympathy with the view that's often expressed that if Europe's the kind of thing that could be brought down by us leaving it, we don't want to be part of it anyway, because it's too fragile? I don't think I wouldn't put it in those terms. I think that there's a history here, and that history is bound up with the Eurozone crisis. And that one way of looking at this story is to say that Britain's problems with membership of the European Union in terms of putting it on the table as something that might lead us to this moment that we are today, really, I think, begin in 2012, when the Eurozone crisis reached its most intense peak, coincides with UKIP's rise at that point, and that dysfunctionality of the Eurozone at that point ensured that when it needed a lender of last resort, that it did not have one. And yet what it had because of the nature of Britain's position outside the Eurozone became an employer of last resort in Britain. And then when you put free movement of labour together with a dysfunctional currency union, we've got to where we are today. And so in that sense, it's not at all surprising what the centrifugal consequences of this moment are because they were bound up to each other from the beginning. And are we looking at another iteration of the Eurozone crisis sooner rather than later because of this? Or were we looking at that anyway? 
I think that we were looking at anyway in the sense that if you look at the latest Greece deal or non-deal we should say is is that the IMF essentially backed off on their confrontation with Germany where they had insisted that Greeks had to have debt relief and Germany was saying no because they were postponing the decision until after the referendum had happened and effectively Christine Lagarde said we can't have Brexit and Brexit at the same time so that crisis had just been pushed down the road. And, and now we're down the road. <laughs> and at the same time though I think that the reason why it has a direct trigger is because the financial markets have got themselves into a position where everything is very strongly correlated with each other in these different financial markets. And one event that might actually not directly pertain to the matter uh, at hand in another financial market is setting things off. And then Britain's exit from, or Britain's road to exit the um, EU, is setting off contagion in periphery bond markets. And that is something that is very destructive for the point of view of the Eurozone crisis. One final look at the news, um, and nothing's happened in the last 15 minutes either. So uh, we'll come back to these questions. We're a few hours after these things, and in a week's time, we'll know a bit more. Um, but also, we haven't even talked about Donald Trump yet, and that's what we spent most of this season of the podcast discussing. He's in the country. He may say something very interesting in Scotland, but whether he does or doesn't, I want to talk to Helen again about the question of what might happen at the convention, because it's still not a done deal. And there is also an interesting question about what Brexit might mean just for people's expectations about what is and isn't possible. So do please subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already. These episodes will pop up if you do. This is the most interesting time in politics in my adult lifetime, I think, certainly since I've been studying it professionally, and it's not going to get any less interesting in the weeks and months to come. So do join us as we discuss it some more. My name's David Runciman, and this has been the Cambridge Politics Podcast Election. People should know that Cambridge voted, what did Cambridge vote? 73. 73, mm -hmm. I guess that means 27. Great. Mm -hmm. uh, the People's Republic of Cambridge. <laughs> but there's also, I saw well, about a week ago, one of those nice Cleopatra's nose things, yeah. which is, what was he called? Eric Joyce punches that guy, oh, yes, which yes. leads to the Falkirk thing, which leads to Miliband changing the rules, <laughs> which leads to the election of Corbyn, which leads to the loss of the referendum, which leads to the collapse of Western civilization. <laughs> Thanks, Eric Joyce. <laughs> <laughs> it's all your fault. Very good. I didn't swear. Hurrah.